This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Yago Rodriguez. He's going to be telling us all about Wiliat Sinai, which is a branch of ISIS in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. The situation there goes largely underreported. However, Wiliat Sinai are actually posing quite a threat to Egypt. They're organizing and they've been launching many attacks, some of which were pretty successful. They also have connections to ISIS in Libya, which is huge. And there have been dealings between Wiliat Sinai and militants in Gaza. To support Popular Front and get bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. You've written this massive paper uh, about Wiliat Sinai, you know, ISIS in Egypt. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, uh, uh, almost two years ago, I was bored. Uh, with my career and I decided to begin to study the Wilayat Sinai because they are part of ISIS but it is probably one of the less treated uh, branches of ISIS. So I began to take all the propaganda videos and everything I found. This was in 2016. And then I wrote this huge article, mainly from the military point of view, but, well, it is very interesting because this branch has uh, also a lot of influence in uh, Libya and other parts of Egypt, and that's interesting because, in theory, it is just the Sinai Wilayat, not the Egyptian Wilayat, let's say. So maybe if you can explain what is the Sinai, because, you know, to say ISIS in Egypt, they're not exactly running around Cairo by any stretch, but they are in the Sinai. I've seen footage of them even setting up checkpoints in certain areas. Maybe you can explain that. What is the Sinai and why are they, why do they have power there? Well, the, the Sinai, the, you know, it, it is that the big peninsula at the east of Egypt that is uh, a big crossroad between the North Africa and uh, the Middle East. So there we've got uh, in the recent history a lot of battles between Egypt and uh, Israel. Uh, the, the area was occupied by Israel until 1982. And there has been also a lot of things going on on the Gaza Strip, which is also has a common frontier with uh, the Sinai. Yeah, there's a border, right? There's a border between Gaza and the Sinai. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's a big uh, thing because there appears a lot of um, illegal activities, a smuggle of weapons, and that all creates the, you know, the, the base that jihadist groups want. So the Sinai is that, is that peninsula. There is like three big uh, geographically speaking areas. So we've got the, the coastal areas, especially the, the north, that is the most populated part. Then we've got a big, uh, at the south of the, of the northern coast, there is a big area of, of big desertic plains and hills. And uh, that is very, it has almost no, no population. And at the south, of the peninsula, there is a big 
mountainous area, very difficult to to fight there for the for the Egyptian army. Also, it, there is almost no population. You know, there is always a little, and also uh, in the peninsula, the ve the presence of uh, Bedouin uh, groups has been existing since uh, centuries ago and they are nomads so they are always moving between uh, different places so this is essentially the 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 peninsula big crossroad between middle east and north africa and the appendix of egypt you know it is egypt but it's a bit of a no man's land and it has been that way for quite a time right yeah yeah it's uh, it's Egypt, but, but it is uh, different from the Egyptian mainland. Maybe that is why it is, um, the Wilayat city is so local-focused, more than maybe other Wilayats, and they are especially acting in certain parts, not even in the whole Sinai, but just in a few areas, very um, concrete, very... Accurate areas, let's say. When did you first see Wilayat Sinai spring up in these areas? When did they kind of form? Well, you know, these kind of areas, different from the mainland, uh, tend to be tend to have, let's say, regionalism. And in this case, um, we've got the Bedouins. We've got a, always um, a slightly different relation with the central power than other parts of Egypt. So. That has always led to a different situation, to insurgency and to a history slightly different than that of the Egyptian mainland. So uh, these groups uh, began to appear in the 80s, the jihadist groups, and uh, there was one that is also considered one of the first bases of uh, ISIS, let's say, uh, that is... Yamal Tawid Bal Jihad, but this is an old group. And uh, there, uh, on the with the beginning of the of the century, you know, Al Qaeda, the International Jihad, and uh, there is a group called Ansar Bait Al Magdis. That is the the real origin of of ISIS, because this group with the victories of ISIS. Uh, on October 2014, uh, get uh, united with ISIS. So that was like the precursor for ISIS in the Sinai. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even it can be said that it just transformed from Ansarbait al Magdis to Wilayat Sinai. Maybe it is 90% the same group. So right, right. So so we've we've seen a similar thing in the in the Philippines where you know Abu Sayyaf ended up just pledging allegiance and there we go, they're a, they're a cell of ISIS now or a, or a franchise. Is it the same kind of thing? Mm, yeah, yeah, it is. It has a lot of common things because, yeah, if you see, if you take a look at uh, jihadism, they tend to take advantage from uh, local features, from local characteristics. And in this case, yeah, it, it, it has, well, it is not the same, but yeah, it has a lot of common things with that. But it must, it must be said that uh, this all began mainly with the Arab Spring, with uh, that uh, this um, destabilization of the of all the Mina area, and then the 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 
Muslim Brotherhood get elected in Egypt. When in 2013, the general Sisi makes the coup d'etat and uh, takes the country. And in that moment, a lot of uh, radical Islamic persons who like it, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, began to uh, look to this kind of jihadist groups. And uh, there begins the problem because the reaction of the of the Egyptian armed forces is not mm, very intelligent from my point of view. Why? What do they do? Well, um, if, if you take a look at uh, the figures, the numbers of this group of uh, Wilayat Sinai, uh, the, the Israeli officials tell that they calculated around 500 members. Egyptian authorities said that they are 12,000. I think that this huge difference can be explained because the Israelis are taking just the combatants, but the Egyptians might be taking the supporters that can be, you know, a civilian that, yeah, who make commentaries in favor of the group, but doesn't make anything for to a civilian who gives them information and all that stuff. Yes, it's all part of the network. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The, the support ne- network for the... For the combatants. Right, and what kind of attacks uh, have Wuliat Sinai been doing? Because this is a very underreported situation. I know they've been doing attacks. I know that for the Egyptian military, they've found it very hard to drive them out of the areas that they control in Sinai because they just kind of move on and spring up again. But you really don't see a lot of this in the media. So maybe you can tell us all about their their insurgency, what they've been doing. Well, yeah, they have been doing every kind of faction from typical mortar attacks to ambushes to IEDs attacks uh, you know all, all that kind of things the bigger uh, operations I think it was one to take uh, a mi- uh, Egyptian military outpost there there they had uh, like uh, a squad uh, uh, sorry a platoon of tanks with uh, machine gun nests, with mortars, it was a well-fortified position. But they were very... They, they planned well the attack, and the Egyptians were maybe too lazy. They, they, they were caught in low guard. And uh, so, so the attack was like... They, was, they sent first uh, the typical uh, car bomb, then with the confusion... There were like uh, at two kilometers, they were awaiting uh, three or four Toyotas loaded uh, with a lot of fighters. They go uh, very fast, they attack the position, the tanks of the Egyptian army begin to run away, and they um, are the, the RPGs are fired at them at almost 50 meters, but they fail at that distance. It is incredible to see the image because. The tank is running away, um, you know, a lot of dust around him, and the guys just uh, running behind him, firing the RPGs. So it is uh, a very interesting action, and uh, you see that they are very aggressive in their tactics, and they are good. I can say that the average uh, with a Jetsine fighter looks better than the average 
fighter from Islamic State or any other group in Syria, actually. Why, why is that? How do you mean they look good? Do you, you mean they fight better or they're better equipped? Well, I think they are better um, trained, uh, clearly. Um, I don't know exactly the reason, but the just one week ago, a guy was caught in Libya. He was called Hisham al-Asmawi. He was caught in Derna at, uh, at Libya, as I said, sorry. And uh, he was part of Al-Qaeda. He was part of uh, Al-Qaeda in the Sinai. So he was closely related to Wilayat Sinai. And he was a member of special forces. So it is very likely that some members or some founders have been part of the Egyptian military and have teached them certain tactics tactics because i see like for example they use a pkm machine gun uh, i think you know that machine gun right or yeah yeah of course yes yeah, kind of a not the kind of machine gun you want to pick up and fire from the hip but often the machine gun we see being fired from the hip in syria and places like that yeah yeah, yeah that's it the the typical machine gun that they fire from the hip that's it well so this is the surprising thing i see them <laughs> Not just aiming, <laughs> but using a tripod. And that's mm, these little details. Or, for example, I saw they, they prepared an ambush and it was mm, well, really well prepared. They put an ID, then there was um, an assault team at, let's say, one or two hundred meters of the road. And they had their AKs and their, their RPGs. And you couldn't see, but you could hear the, the support team. So they were like, use the ID to create shock, confusion, the assault team, and a support team with heavy machine guns at the back. It is not perfect, because, for example, they didn't have protection for their flanks to get surrounded. But it means that they have been trained. There was also a discipline of fire. It wasn't like everyone shooting uh, when they want. No, there was first shoot, they shoot, then the first machine gun, then the second machine gun. They alternate their fire. So it is relatively well planned. Right, right. So you can tell there's some kind of military discipline there, whether that's extremely well-trained guerrillas or like you say people who are former special forces from egypt i guess they they get involved in their training people as well right yeah 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 that's a, a big point you see for example their their propaganda and a good part of it is dedicated to how they teach their fighters and they have um, theoretical lessons because you know in the military there are practical let's say you know uh, when they go to fire to real fire exercises and there is also a theoretical um, teaching so they make this they they have for example an inert uh, manpad or an inert ATM and they teach them how to use it they show them in an image I remember an M60 pattern and they Show them what is the weakest part. If you have to aim, where it is most likely that it will cause um, an absolutely destructive expulsion for the tank. All that kind of 
of stuff is very interesting, but still we don't know exactly who has been teaching them all of these things. Right, but it's quite clear, you know, they have people with the knowledge to do this stuff. And do you know where are they getting their weapons from? We've got, as, as we said, the, the Gaza Strip. There is a lot of smuggle. All this area tend to be, you know, as I said, a crossroad. And so there um, it is centralized or, uh, you know, the, the, the black market from part of Africa that goes to the north and from part of North Africa who goes to the east and that things. But the weapons, uh, possibly a big part of them come from Libya. With the destabilization of the country, a lot of weapons were free. And if I don't remember bad, in 2013 it was caught um, a load of 60 ATGMs that was going from Wilayat Sinai. So there is a pretty big, uh, uh, you know, traffic of weapons going on there and that's where they get them from. However, you cannot uh, um, regret the possibility that also uh, corrupt officials, as we have seen in Syria and in all, a lot of times, have been given them, well, selling them weapons and that kind of things that are very common. Right, so, so how, does the, how do the weapons at this stage get from Libya to the Sinai? Well, you know, it is a very big frontier and it is also um, an unpopulated frontier at the south. You know, Libya and Egypt, most of the frontier is just a big desert. So even having drones and all of that technology, it is very difficult to control the area because you need to have uh, outposts and it is very expensive to have outposts isolated in me in the middle of the desert that they need uh, logistical support from time to time that logistical support can be attacked and in the end there is also a lot of people who lives by crossing the frontier so it's like for example between Syria and Turkey Turkey cannot close the frontier because a lot of people is living from that from that um, trade between the two areas so this is the same you've got a parish problems and possibly also the corruption if they just uh, if there is an outpost with 15 guys maybe it is not too difficult to give something to the leader of the position and pass through that place and after that they have to to go east and uh, hope not to find uh, a checkpoint, and uh, that's all. So it's pretty easy. Mm, well, I, I don't know. Maybe if you are in the car and you are thinking, damn, <laughs> if this guy doesn't accept my money, or if, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's easy, but yeah, it happens, and it has happened a lot of times. In the end, if there is so much weapons in the Gaza Strip, it is obvious that they don't come from Israel. They come from the Egypt, that is their only frontier. So Yeah, well, let's talk about Gaza, because I was, for a long time, I was planning to do a documentary about ISIS in Gaza. And I know that Hamas and, you know, specifically Al-Qassam have been 
killing ISIS guys in Gaza. They're fighting them because they don't want them taking hold. They don't want any kind of any challenge to their power, really. That's the main issue. However, at the same time, at the same time as fighting ISIS in Gaza, Hamas are also dealing with ISIS in the Sinai because they're getting weapons and stuff like that. Have you seen any, any evidence of that in your research? Ooh, I haven't seen it, but I think that it is very likely because... Well, the, if you take a look at the activities in the Sinai, most of them can be concentrated between the 15 kilometers of the be, uh, between the city of Aris and the frontier with Gaza. In those 50 kilometers, most of the uh, terrorist attacks happened. So that is exactly the frontier with Gaza, and that is where obviously. Wilayat Sinai has more influence because, he, well, some there are different theories on one of their leaders called Abu Osama al-Masri, but one of them is that he is from the city of Al-Aris, that is where a lot of terrorist attack, attacks happen. So I think that if Hamas uh, want to get weapons, it is possibly important to have the support from Wilayat Sinai at the other side of the frontier because mm, all these kind of illegal activities, uh, weapons, trade, drugs, trade too, um, tend to be connected. So possibly there is certain support or mutual help and what about the connections in libya i think what is it was isis in libya is that ansar al-sharia yeah it was isis and it was uh, al-qaeda right right and and did, did williat sinai have a connection to them because you know the proximity would make sense uh, yeah um i think i, I cannot say 100 percent, but it is very likely because First of all, the weapons, especially as I said, the ATGMs possibly came from Libya. As we said, 60 were caught by Egyptian authorities before they were Wilayat Sinai. This was when Ansar Bait al-Makdis. And obviously, Libya presents an opportunity. Maybe it has happened like with ISIL when they uh, went into Syria. They have found an opportunity in Libya to establish contacts, to get support, and maybe to... Well, there's a book that is the management of savagery that is has influxed a lot. That is, I think we should mention what that is. That's basically, I forget who wrote it, but I know that Al-Qaeda and many other jihadist groups used it, specifically ISIS, when dealing out horrific torture on their victims. Yeah, well, it is, um, it is, the book is like a strategic guide written on 2004 by uh, an Al-Qaeda strategist. The, the writer was uh, Abu Bakr Nagy, and it has been closely followed, even if you see the, the targets of the, the targets of the attacks of Wilayat Sinai, you will find that uh, they are possibly following step by step this book because, for example, uh, this book detects like two big uh, weak points on of the states. That is especially the tourism and the petrol. Uh, it says that those points must be attacked because 
they have a big infrastructure. You cannot protect all the tourists, you cannot protect all the refineries, all the pipelines, all the docks, you cannot protect everything. So if the state want to protect these, these assets, they need to send a lot of troops. And when they send troops there, they must take them from another place. So when that another place uh, gets wicked, the terrorists can grow up there and they can establish their region of savagism savagism that's the, what they call that's like uh, a step towards the final aim that is established islamic state so if you see the attacks of uh, wilayat sinai they are especially directed towards tourism towards foreigners even a, a croatian a uh, citizen was killed by them uh, after having him kidnapped for a long time, Tomislav Salopek, and they attacked the Italian consulate, and we all know those kind of actions that they take. So that is very, very interesting because it is what they are mostly following. Still, if they don't have success in the Egyptian mainland, if the, if the central power stays strong, it will be almost impossible for them to achieve anything because you know it is Egypt is too big for them. I was I was going to ask what are their aims because like you just said Egypt is far too big for them. They're not going to end up taking over Egypt and and they're not going to turn Cairo into their version of Raqqa. And even in the Sinai, they don't really have a permanent base. So what is their aim? It sounds to me like they're just causing chaos in the name of jihad. I guess, you know, what's their end goal? Yeah, well, um, if you read the, this book, it, it has like three big phases. The, the first of all is the vexation phase, they call that. The second one is the management of savagery, and the third is the establish of uh, the establish of the caliphate. The first phase, the vexation phase, uh, consists on create vacuum power, you know, to to destroy the state or to weaken it at certain point that it leads to a situation where the state has the has lost the power in that area. So when that happens, begins what they call the the savagery phase. More than savagery, it should be called wildness because it is not savagery in the sense of kill a lot or violence. It is in the sense of that there is no power. It's like a wild situation. So in at that moment, in theory, they are prepared not to, to take power but to um, get uh, to, to get out of the state and dominate the area, not necessarily on their own, but also uh, making agreements with other groups. Especially the tribes are one of the, of the um, preferable targets in this sense. So what they are trying to do is create chaos waiting for a moment, maybe something like an Arab Spring, something like that, when the situation for the state becomes very bad, and maybe not in their own, but also, uh, you know, making agreements with the tribes, with political groups, Muslim Brotherhood or whatever, even Al-Qaeda, it, 
it depends a lot in the local relations between them and at that point you know push uh, build their strategy so that's what they are trying generate chaos and we will see if there is an opportunity in the future to to expand the jihad right right and what kind of support do they have because i have friends from egypt i have uh, two egyptian friends and neither of them, you know, uh, uh, kind of giving me this impression that hardline Islamist jihad is a big thing there or ever was really, you know. It's not exactly in the culture there as it is in other places where ISIS have taken hold. Mm, yeah, well, the point is that maybe it is a very local thing. They have tried attacks in... Uh, in El Cairo and that kind of things, but their main activities obviously in certain parts of the Sinai. And well, the group, as, as we said, um, they have uh, like 500 combatants and 12,000 supporters, okay? So, what is their real support? Well, um, let me just give... Uh, well, I said later that uh, the Egyptian army was did bad, you know, with them. And this was um, because I want to give you the next uh, uh, data. In 2013, uh, there was a big, a huge operation against them uh, by the Egyptian army. And there were 200 deaths, 1,500 detainees... And 350 homes were destroyed. Also, they cut all the olive trees between El Aris and Rafa. That is a 50-kilometer road. And also to the local airport. Remember that this is a group with 500 combatants. 1,500 people have been detained. <laughs> I don't want to prejudge the Egyptians, but I bet that a lot of part of that people uh, is um, possibly or innocent or just low important supporters that after stay in prison and probably get tortured and get tortured they will um, have more support for this islamist uh, for this uh, radical group so their support possibly has grown due to this way of fact right well there's the irony when you have uh a, you know a semi-totalitarian state like let's be honest egypt is right now you end up with support for a different totalitarian ideology which would be you know an islamic jihad totalitarian ideology but what you're saying is basically because of the harsh way that the egyptian government deals with anyone associated you reckon that's creating more support uh, yeah, that's well. We know how Egyptian authority, authorities tend to act. They are, uh, you know, there was a very famous case with an Italian student who was possibly mistaken by the the Egyptian intelligence. He was uh, hugely tortured, and he his body appeared somewhere in El Cairo, I think. So. If they do that to a foreigner, <laughs> and I think we foreigners tend to be, in certain sense, more respected by the authorities. Yeah, well, I think I think they're more. You know, I I certainly experienced it in Turkish prison. The the guards at least are aware that if they start fucking you up, 
someone is going to find out about it, you know. It's really sad and unfortunately it's the way the world is. But you're right, like if they're going to treat a foreigner like that, God knows what they're doing to the people native to the country, eh? Yeah, and you know, after that they get more support and it is very difficult to fight them. But with those tactics, also sometimes I think, I know that this might not be politically correct, but I'm not sure at what point you could deal with local population without quite violent aims. I mean, I don't want to sound like a horrible man, but um, maybe certain gestures that here in the West we would find like, oh, he's approaching me, he's trying to be good, he's trying to make good to the community, would be taken like weakness or, you know, I'm not sure at what level in this kind of states the state can stay in power without being quite violent. That's my question, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, yeah, it, it's a bit of a dilemma because you cannot treat, you know, pure evil of ISIS with a soft hand. You just absolutely cannot. And it's very easy for Westerners to say, oh, you know, follow this rule, follow that rule. It's not on their doorsteps every day, which, you know, it, it is out there. Um, and in terms of the growth of Wilayat Sinai, is it still growing? Because I know at one point it really kind of spiked. There was quite a rapid growth. Are we still seeing that? Well, uh, again, there is a lot of... Uh darkness on, on this thing, it is not clear if they are more or if, if they are better than uh, two years ago or if they are better. There has been a lot of counter-terrorism operations, but they have been still able to make huge terrorist attacks. If you remember, there was one against uh, a Sufi mosque. There, 300 people were killed. That was huge. Yeah, that was recently, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, if I don't remember bad, uh, like one year ago or so. So, if they are wicked, they are still capable of fighting. That is for sure. Uh, there is a, a little ambush that happened that I find very interesting. It, it is... Apparently it has nothing. It is uh, uh, a town on a, on a hill and there is a guy with an RPG at the limit of the town and also three or four guys with AKs. And so they are waiting a vehicle of the army to pass. When the vehicle of the army begins to climb the hill, at a certain moment the, it appears for the guy of the RPG and so he fights his RPG and uh, the vehicle begins to speed up, they fire their AKs against him at point-blank range, but okay, it survived. But the interesting thing, interesting thing on this apparently innocent ambush is that the ambush was prepared in the limit of a town. So that means that they were not... Uh, afraid that somebody was going to tell the police that they knew that that vehicle was going to pass that they know that um, the the people in the end is, is not going to betray them and that tells a lot why the Egyptian army vehicle speed up uh, 
he knows that he is in inferiority, that he is not going to get support from nobody there. So, you know, it tells you that the the Egyptian state, as you said before, uh, they they have put checkpoints. <laughs> That's well, it is just propaganda, but it is true that some guys with a big gun on their on their pickups have been in the middle of a road. You know, they are not afraid of uh, police or... Well, let's talk about that because I, I found that really interesting for the first time, or at least for, for me, the first time I saw it. I think you probably put it on Twitter or something like that. But the Williat Sinai set up little checkpoints and they were, you know, doing these, what looked like almost mock patrols around this town in in the Sinai and I'd never seen that before and that was very much what ISIS were doing when they first came out you know well not not came out but you know what I mean when they came up to when they started rising up in Syria why did they suddenly start doing that do you think because that's a brazen move I find it like when an animal make peace to <laughs> mark his territory so <laughs> like say we are here the state is not stopping us when the people from there see this they might think who should I be loyal to? Who, who makes me more afraid? So uh, they are. This means that the the state has lost part of the battle in the civilian minds, let's say. So um, you see, for example, one operation that they concentrated like twelve or 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 thirteen pickups with their heavy machine guns on them and everything. And that convoy was traveling through a road that is very difficult to spot from there or from anybody to see it and call the army or the police or whoever. So if they feel confidence enough to concentrate 12 pickups, that is, let's say, 12 per 5 fighters, 50 fighters, that's like a section of an... I don't know if that's the name in English, but in Spanish it's sección. Uh, like a section of uh, infantry. Yeah, it's like between the the company and the platoon. The yeah, a section. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay, okay. So the that's a relatively big force, and with that you can assault not of obviously a big military base, but outposts with certain troops. Oh, and also speaking on the military point of view. Well, if you want, we can speak later about their snipers because they are very interesting. But, yeah, uh, they are getting in the minds of the people. They are showing that they got, they've got the, the force there. They have local support. That's obvious. I remember there was an IED attack, but it is not like waiting in a big road where you know that somebody is going to pass at a certain moment. It was an ID attack against a patrol, possibly of recruits, that were walking um, close to a bridge. They were without weapons. So these guys knew in a walk uh, close to a village that, that can be, you know, somewhere, that they were going to pass. That means that they get really good information on that. Obviously, a lot of people is telling them that a lot of people is helping them to hide their weapons. A lot of people is not uh, telling the authorities that they are there. And that's 
well, very interesting. Yeah, that, that shows at least local support or collusion of some kind. And tell me about these snipers. You mentioned the snipers. What's so special about Williat Sinai snipers? Well, there is a very interesting propaganda video. It is also, it has a good length. It is where they show that they make sniper attacks against a lot of uh, Egyptian army outposts. And it is very interesting because they, for, you know, they are not Navy SEALs, but they are pretty good at what they are doing for for the Middle East and for not to be part of a professional army. They, for example, they act in pairs. They've got these ghillie suites uh, that are very good for camouflage. There is, for example, you see one observer with his binoculars looking for objectives. He has an AKMS uh, for close protection. And the other one has uh, the sniper rifle that can be like an Dragunov or even an M24 rifle like that used by certain parts of the US Army. And they are very good at stalking. They are they approach with silent. They are able to uh, to hide themselves close to an objective, observe it, and make a good suit from various hundred meters of distance, possibly more than half a kilometer. That is not huge for an army sniper, but it is it is okay. Also, Dragunov uh, sniper rifle is not good for much more distance that, than a half of a kilometer. So they have been well trained to approach the objective without being seen, to don't stay at the top of the hill silhouetting themselves against the horizon uh, to move silently to uh, there is for example an image where they are walking with certain position that is the the rifle almost aimed but not exactly and moving closely looking at uh, around 90 degrees that kind of things that are teaching in sniper for snipers of professional armies are very interesting and also it must be said that in part this is due to the incompetence of of the Egyptian army because you know uh, some people think that build a military position is put all the rubbish <laughs> they generate and build a wall with that and you know that might be useful for some things, but um, you should build uh, properly um, field fortification. You must hide the position for the machine gun, for the sharpshooters, or for whoever. And that is not happening. The positions of the Egyptian army are clear can be clearly seen from a big distance the um, sentinels are very exposed right right so they're they're messing things up a little bit um have many egyptian fighters gone over to join isis in syria you know when the war was going on there i mean it, it's still going on but it's 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 you know the no one's really going to join isis there anymore they're kind of on their way out have we seen many egyptians head over well um... 
you know, jihad nowadays is an international phenomenon. <laughs> we can say the the, the globalized jihad. <laughs> they they are for sure. They're, they they have appeared also. If I don't remember, but the Cobra PG7 Egyptian uh, warheads, and they have been used in in Syria. So there is obvious connections. Mm, I cannot say hundred percent, but Possibly there are Egyptian fighters in... Well, there have been. Possibly there might be some still today. But it is maybe more interesting that um, Wilayat Sinai has get fighters from um, Palestine, from Gaza obviously, from Egypt and maybe from other countries like Jordan, but it is not that is not sure. And what about Israel's role in all of this? What are they up to? Well, um, it is always interesting that Israel is <laughs> very close. You know, they have frontier, and if they will take action against Wilayat Sinai, if Egyptian army fails to control certain areas, because we see that even at certain moments, uh, the Wilayat Sinai has fired uh, rockets against Israel, trying to provoke a response. But you know, Israel cannot uh, violate uh, the the Egyptian airspace because that will cause a huge problem in the internal affairs of Egypt. Because in, we know what happens in certain countries when these kind of things happen. A lot of people think, oh, how is this possible? Just because somebody has uh, penetrated the airspace one kilometer or, or things like that. So they can use Egypt as a safe space to launch rockets and Israelis must be very careful on the response. So it is interesting in that sense. And... Well, they have um, an interesting net of of um, shelters over the Sinai. Some of them are prepared to produce their their own IEDs. They try to be uh, self-sufficient because uh, it is interesting. If you are trying to prepare the explosives, you cannot do, or at least they don't do always on big cities. They are in the middle of the desert, but that cannot be connected to the general electricity net because that would make the, possibly, the police, uh, they would, that would call the police, uh, the, the attention of the police. Because if you see you know, to, to produce an ID, you need a lot of welders uh, and a lot of electricity. And that can call the, the attention of the police because there is somebody in the middle of the desert that is wasting a lot of electricity. At least in Spain, that was used to find uh, hiding places of uh, our terrorist, our Basque terrorist group. Um, so where can people get hold of you if they want to follow your work and get in touch? Uh, well, uh, I, uh, well, in, in Twitter I am MinsterTX and, uh, well, I used to write in Spanish and I think I've written 
pretty interesting things on T40 Armata or Type 99 Chinese tank or or things like that. I'm also writing a book about the Syrian war. I'm like 700 pages, so you know it is being pretty hard work. But yeah, in Twitter, I am in Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I would suggest that everybody goes and follows you and reads up on your work as well, because I think the work you've done with this Williat Sin, I think is very much like the ethos of Popular Front, getting into the nitty gritty, the very niche kind of stuff that mainstream, I hate to use that word, but mainstream media will tell you that nobody's interested and actually loads of people are interested in it. So uh, I think it's great work, man. Thank you very much and thank you for for Popular Front, because I think that is a very interesting podcast and you know I my English is not perfect but I I like to hear it a lot hey my, my Spanish is non-existent so don't worry thanks very much mate and have a good day thank you very much bye so that was Yago Rodriguez talking about Williat Sinai the ISIS threat in Egypt's peninsula This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. And if you want to support Popular Front, if you want bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of stuff, go to patreon.com slash popular front. And again, you know, if you like what you're hearing here, please help us keep it going because the podcast will stay for free. But getting it up and running really does help if you support on the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash popular front. Special thanks to Alium Leroy, Axel Iverson, Cedar Fenn, Chad Walker, Cody Bergerud, Dan, Diana Gorvanek, Dan Dunham, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, James, Joanne Stocker, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Peter McCormack, Ryan Sandercock, Stephen Henderson, Teddy and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Please subscribe and hit the bell on our YouTube. That is youtube.com slash popular front. There's going to be a lot more video content coming soon. To keep up to date with Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That is at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Or the Popular Front Twitter, which is at Popular Front C-O like the website which when we hit a certain patreon goal will become more than a landing page it will become a full website i promise that is popularfront.co you can see all the episodes there also follow us on instagram there's a lot of stuff there uh instagram.com slash popular dot front music in this episode the intro was by home his soundcloud is soundcloud.com slash home dash 2001 and the outro was by Son of Old, soundcloud.com slash son of old. A lot of people have been asking me about the outro music. Um, and me and Son of Old, we're talking about maybe putting together some kind of mixtape or something like that. So we can maybe put that out. But um, that will go out on Son of Old SoundCloud and probably on the popular front one as well, which is, in fact, what is it? soundcloud.com slash popular frontcast. <laughs> <laughs>